Hello, I'm Ariel Kroon. And I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to Season 3 of Solarpunk Presence. The podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8, where Ariel interviews Paul Hearsink, Program Manager at Esri Canada. ESRI, or the Environmental Systems Research Institute, is the world's leading supplier of geographic information system software. You have almost certainly seen maps layered with information produced using their ArcGIS software. This software is used to work with and visualize geographic data, for instance, by plotting data not on an XY graph, but on a map according to the location where each datum was collected. This is a powerful way to see environmentally or geographically related patterns in what you're studying. And it can be an important tool in the fight to protect the environment. But before we continue, I'd like to interrupt myself to say, I hope you've been enjoying our podcasts. We put a lot of work into them to make them interesting for you, but we could use your support. Join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence for a few dollars a month for early access to episodes and bonus content. That would really, really help us out. Or recommend us to a friend. Or write us a review. All of that will help us grow our audience and keep creating great interviews and discussions for you to listen to. Thanks, and now for this week's episode. Ariel here, just dropping in to add a bit of background that I didn't quite get to in the original recording. Paul has always been interested in mapping and drew his own atlas at the age of 10. Speaking strictly in terms of adult career history, he has over 15 years of cartographic experience working in both the public and private sectors. Paul is a longtime friend of my parents, but we've never really sat down to talk about what it is that he does and his own interests in mapping, and so I found this conversation so informative and delightful. All right, back to the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Solarpunk Presence. Today, I'm sitting down with Paul Hearsink, who cartographer, and he has just informed me he is no longer production manager of Esri Canada's Community Maps program. He has instead... Well, Paul, why don't you introduce yourself? What are you up to these days? Hi, Ariel. Thanks for having me on the program. I am still working at the same company, Esri Canada, which is a leading GIS software provider for well, for everybody, I guess. Um, My role there has changed. Uh, Last November, I moved into a new role, program manager for the Roads and Addresses program, which is similar to the Community Maps program that you were talking about, where we're gathering data, specifically roads and address data, Mm. and building a uh, national database of those two data levels, layers, I should say. Cool. Well, I was going to ask you what Esri is, but thank you for going over it a little bit. Because I keep seeing it in the corners of of the maps that I will use, like information provided by Esri Canada. And I, you know, have always kind of been aware of it, but not really in the sense that I actually know what it is. Esri actually stands for Environmental Systems Research 
Institute. And it started back in the late 60s, uh, providing consulting services for environmental projects. When they were doing that, they realized that they, they had developed a piece of software for providing those services. And they realized that the software is actually more valuable than the services they provided. So they changed focus. And here we are now about 40 years later, 45 years later or so. Well, I had questions about the community map of Canada. And um, I was going to ask you, why is it important that it's like a community map? And I guess this sort of translates to what you're doing with the the roads project as well. So can you tell me a little bit about why it's important to sort of gather this data together in one place? Uh, When you're using online mapping services such as Google or Bing or whatever your favorite mapping service is, it's generally uh, commercial data. So Google, for instance, has gathered all that information, put that together in a single map. We don't have the resources that Google does. Mm -hmm. Google being a big company with lots of uh, deep pockets. Um, And also what we're finding is that a lot of that information might not be correct or up to date. And we Mm -hmm. generally go with the data provider that is what we call closest to the source. So closest to the ground. So a lot of those would be municipalities, cities and towns that obviously have an interest in keeping their mapping content up to date. They know of all the changes that are happening. They know of new subdivisions going in, usually before anybody else does. So what we're doing is we're relying on those data sources, what we call authoritative data sources, and we're putting that all together for the whole country. It's sort of like a giant big puzzle that doesn't have interlocking pieces to go together. So it's a bit of a bit of a well, it is a bit of a puzzle to put all that together and to make everything match. And that's the challenge of the community maps program. Is the data provided by municipalities mostly, or is it sort of individual based? Who contributes this data? So again, like I said, we were going looking at authoritative data providers. Uh, so most of those are municipalities. We currently have over 350 different contributors uh, providing data to the community maps program. That includes data coming from the federal government, provincial governments, uh, the municipalities. And then there's also some non-governmental organizations. So uh, we have a couple of airports, for instance, that are providing detailed information on their uh, property, the buildings, runways, roads, et cetera. We also have universities and colleges that are providing that information and also First Nations and some parks. So with the roads project, then, is that similar, would you say? Yes, it is. So uh, the roads project is piggybacking on the community maps uh, data collection. So we're not actually collecting data. We're just uh, living off the benefits of the community map in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we're noticing is that communities generally have a good grasp of what's going on within the boundaries of their municipality. But generally what happens beyond their boundaries is a mystery to them. So they don't always talk to neighboring municipalities. So like if they are building a roads layer for their municipality, generally stops at the boundary, but they're not matching up those roads with the roads that are in the neighboring municipality. So Mm -hmm. what happens then in the community maps is uh, we get two neighboring municipalities that might not even agree on where their boundary is and their content doesn't match up. So part of the roads program, part of the program is that we are looking to take that data 
and match that up so that it is one seamless road network for the entire country. Oh, that's super useful. I've definitely been on roads that all of a sudden will just switch names um, <laughs> halfway through at some seemingly to me arbitrary boundary line. So exactly. Um, Most people don't really pay attention too much attention to those boundary lines or driving along the road. They want to get from point A to point B and doesn't really matter if it's in a different municipality or jurisdiction. But when it comes to data, it does. It really sounds like this is something that's more informed by communities who actually know what's sort of happening in their area. So rather than like a top-down approach, like say Google Maps would have, like it's sort of a, a ground up kind of like, you know, like, oh, well, we call this road this name, um, as opposed to just a name that's being imposed on it by some outside source. Is that correct? Yes, uh, we don't. I mean, because, uh, well, we're sitting across, we have the uh, team members across the country working on this project. But for me, sitting in the Toronto office, I am not going to know exactly what is really the case on the ground in Dawson Creek, BC, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. If they provide me with data and they say, here are our roads, this is what they're called, this is where they are, I'm going to assume that that's correct because I have. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability to actually do any ground truthing to <laughs> actually check to see if what they're providing me is correct. So I'm running on the assumption that it is going to be correct unless something comes up where it's like, oh, there's a problem. And if that's the case, then we will uh, get back to that contributor and say, hey, we're finding issues in this area. Can you take a look at it and make sure that that's correct? Oh, that's really great. That's really admirable. Just, you know, just well, listening to to people who are actually in that place and and using that to inform a more broader approach, I guess. The downside of that, of course, is that everybody does it slightly differently. Everybody wants to map their roads, but they might include different information. They might have different categories for the roads. They might have different ways of attributing those roads. We're, of course, taking a national perspective on this. So we want to have a consistent database uh, that uh, has the same rules applied to all the data coming in and so that uh, if you're looking at this category of road in this part of the country that generally means the same thing as in another part of the country which isn't always the case because everybody does things their own way. Mm -hmm. I mean I was recently talking to someone who was visiting Canada and was saying I didn't realize that Canada was so regional I was like yeah it's uh, yeah yeah you de de definitely realize you know the whole all those things that you learned in social studies in grade school with you know the division between uh, federal and provincial responsibilities you do realize that the country is very decentralized that way and provinces municipalities do things in their own way that generally are the same, but are not quite the same. So you have to make adjustments and accommodations for that. I'd like to switch gears a little bit to ask you about your work mapping the uh, sunken ships of the Second World War. The map is available on ArcGIS, and we'll make sure to put the link in the description so viewers can see what we're talking about, because it's really impressive. And I really had fun sort of toggling back and forth and and exploring the map. And so as I understand it, it's an eight-year project at this point. So how did you first have the idea for it and why did you act on it? Yeah, uh, it has been a very long project. I sometimes am surprised at how long it's taken. And I think if I realize that 
it would take me this long, I might not have started with it, which is probably <laughs> just as well. Uh, so it sort of got started in one of those moments where I was just browsing the internet, looking at some sites that I was interested in. And I do have an interest in Second World War history and, of course, mapping. Um, so I came across this site called uboat.net that mapped all the German submarines that sunk during the Second World War and all the ships that they sank during the Second World War. And they would have little, uh, tiny little Google Maps uh, showing points on the map where those uh, sinkings occurred. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to put this all in one map to see, you know, what what spatial temporal patterns might come out of that? Hmm. Uh, so I started looking at that, but then I thought, well, why just stop with the 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 boats that the U-boats sank and the U-boats themselves? Um, of course, you know, the war went on for six years and there was a lot of ships that were sunk mm-hmm. outside of uh, that area. Uh, so I started looking around, quickly realized that there wasn't anything really comprehensive that covered everything. Uh, I did come across a little uh, JPEG of a map uh, that had uh, supposedly 8,000 dots on the map, but you couldn't do anything with it. It was just an image. You couldn't find out any information about any of the shipwrecks. So I thought I'd start doing that. So I start pulling that all together. Uh, There's a number of different databases available online that I uh, started drawing on, but I realized quickly realized that if I wanted to cover everything, that I would have to go through the war very systematically. So I did that on a day-to-day basis. I started with uh, Wikipedia, which has a list of all the ships that were sunk on each day. Well, most of them at least. So I would start with that. Uh, I would cross-reference all the data that they had listed there to see if I could actually find a location and other sources confirming that. Because, of course, you know Wikipedia is is uh, user edited so there can be cases where there are errors in the data or Mm -hmm. in the information so i basically work through the war day by day and right now uh i'm still working on it even though i've gone through the whole war i'm still uncovering additional sources that can help uh, improve my database so right now i have about fifteen thousand ships on the map uh with another five thousand that i don't have an exact location so in some cases, you know, somebody says, oh, this ship was sunk here and it's a fairly general location. So my favorite one was this ship was sunk in the Pacific Ocean. So, <laughs> I mean, I could put that on the map, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't be. <laughs> That's a little broad. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, how did you get all the data necessary to create this interactive map? Like Wikipedia, you said it, you started with it, which is, I mean, I, I advocate Wikipedia as a great place to start, but it's not a great place to end, right? So where did you yeah, go from Wikipedia? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, if you're looking for sort of a high-level uh, overview of something, it might be a good place to take a look at. But if you're looking for more detail, uh, then you need to look elsewhere. Um, and in some cases, some of the references that uh, uh, the editors have used in Wikipedia show up on Wikipedia, and you can follow them up and get the information straight from the horse, so to speak. But yeah, there's I've got, I think, over over 100 different data sources that I pulled in. Some of them have provided a lot of data. Some of them are very localized. So for instance, a great source is uh, local diving enthusiasts. 
So they might have, uh, they might be interested in a particular area and say, here are the great dive sites in Indonesia, for instance. Uh Um, Now they're not that complete, but what happens is uh, they're great for actually pinpointing the location of those wrecks, right? So um, I can, I've, I've basically for, for all the ships that I've done, I basically done a Google search on them. I would do uh, you know, search for this ship with the date and then see what comes up. Sometimes you get lots of stuff. Sometimes you don't get anything. Nice. So that's a, it's a lot of searching going on. I bet. I bet your search history is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, it's actually probably kind of boring because it's like, you know, looking for, uh, I don't know, like the Titanic sunk in 19, what is it? 13 or whatever it is, or 11. Christina breaking in to say, that the Titanic sank on April 15th, 1912. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, it's it's obviously it's Titanic is not in the list, but it's probably something that people know about. <laughs> so you mentioned that the one ship was said it was sunk in the Pacific Ocean. Um, yes. I wanted to ask you if your data includes information from like just the Pacific Ocean or from the Atlantic Ocean, like off of Canada and Europe or this Pacific theater or both or more. I'm not very well versed in ocean mapping and (laughs) all the names of the different places. Yeah. So uh, the, um, I mean, the data is from around the world. If you look at the map, you'll see dots representing each of the sunken ships scattered around the world. Most of the uh, ship sinkings in the Second World War occurred in the North Atlantic, the Mediterranean, the Western Pacific, and some in the Indian Ocean. But there are uh, cases where there are ships that have been sunk, showing up in surprising locations. Um, One instance, for instance, uh, was uh, a German ship that was sunk in the harbor in uh, a town in Costa Rica. Costa Rica was involved in the war. And when the war broke out, a lot of these uh, German and Italian ships were parked in neutral harbors until um, later on in the World War when countries like the United States pressured these countries to uh, take control of these ships. So instead of taking control of the ships, the German sailors would actually sink them. Oh, okay. So sort of like the the general just killing himself on the battlefield kind of thing. Yeah, so it's the, like, the well, if we can't have that. this, you can't have it either. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so the Stardad is kind of a, a passion project for you, but I think over the years it, it's come to gain more of a significance and people are starting to recognize the importance of this. And uh, I was wondering if I could hear from you sort of why why people have conveyed to you why it's important to map these wrecks sort of from an ecological standpoint. Because I came across this article in the Honolulu Beat, which is a newspaper from Hawaii that was calling these ships, you know, ticking ecological time bombs. Um, And could you explain that a little bit more for us? Absolutely. When I first started, of course, you know, it was a hobby, something that kept me busy. I loved the mapping, loved doing the research, putting all that information together. And then when I actually published uh, my results, uh, I think a couple of years ago now, um, especially in the past 12 months, I've been getting a lot of a number of queries from uh, different uh, academics and researchers who are looking to locate polluting wrecks in the ocean. And of course, uh, with 
20,000 ships in the ocean, a lot of them would be, most of them would be carrying fuel of some sort or another. Some mm-hmm. would be, be carrying uh, toxic uh, materials or ammunition. So you can understand how these possibly might be a danger to the environment. If a ship has been down the ocean for the last 80 years, the, the, the steel hulls eventually decay. And it's a very slow process, but the the concern is, especially for some of those uh, ships like tankers, for instance, that might still be containing uh, oil in them, that uh, the ship's hull would deteriorate to such a point where it's weakened that it will uh, suffer catastrophic collapse. So, which means all the oil and material inside the ship would be released. And well, you can imagine what happens then. Right, right. I, you know, I, this is something that I hadn't really thought of in context of the Second World War and these sort of shipwrecks um, and, and downed ships. I really should have, though, because during my thesis, I specifically looked at one book where one of the main points of conflict was this sunken oil tanker off the coast of California, and everybody wanted the oil in it because it was 1970 and that was the most important thing. And like there was all this discourse about it, um, but I just didn't apply that to the like the context of uh, ships sunk during naval battles. But I mean, of course, that makes a whole lot of sense. A lot of ships, of course, are sunk in very deep water. I mean, you think of uh, probably one of the most famous ships in the Second World War was the Bismarck, mm-hmm. um, which sunk in the North Atlantic. Uh, I'm not sure how deep it is, but it's not something that somebody could just, you know, park their boat over and have a dive at. Christina breaking in again to say, The Bismarck was a 42,000-ton German battleship scuttled by the Germans on May 27, 1941, after it sustained crippling damage during the Battle of the Denmark Strait, which lies between Greenland and Iceland. The wreck of the Bismarck was located in 1989 by the somewhat controversial marine explorer Bob Ballard. The ship now rests at a depth of 4,791 meters, or 15,719 feet, about two-thirds of the way down the side of an extinct submarine volcano roughly 600 kilometers, or 400 miles, west of the port town of Brest in northwestern France. Not that you really care about this last bit of trivia, but hey, I actually lived in a little village outside of Brest for six years. I worked as a professor of biogeochemistry in the marine graduate school there. Okay, you really didn't care about that, but I had to throw that in there. Ships like that are also designated as war graves. Uh, and some of those ships are in shallower water. So, for instance, right now there's um, a number of uh, ships from the British, Australian, and Dutch navies in Southeast Asia that were sunk in relatively shallow water. And in the last year or two, Chinese ships have been salvaging some of that material and recycling the metal. Uh, obviously, this creates a bit of a stir in countries like the UK, where uh, they're feeling like those ships are not being, or those locations are not being respected properly. The other thing is, uh, usually, there there have been a number of ships that were sunk with uh, loads of gold on them. 
Mm. Uh, so the countries that were invaded by Germany, for instance, uh, would put their gold reserves before, you know, when they knew that this was coming up, they would put their gold reserves on a ship and mm. send it to either the United States or Canada. On occasion, some of those ships have been sunk. And when you're dealing with tons of gold, obviously, there's a financial incentive to uh, <laughs> sell the jet ship. Uh, so that has, I think, probably the more valuable uh, cargoes uh, lying at the bottom of the ocean have been already retrieved. But again, I know that there are cases where there are oil tankers with, you know, uh, thousands of tons of uh, crude oil on them that are still sitting at the bottom of the ocean. That's probably worth a pretty penny, but who knows if it's actually worth salvaging for all the money that you spend on it. I mean, from an ecological standpoint, I would say it's definitely yeah, from a, from an ecological standpoint, gonna... definitely. But if there was a private company that says, I want to make money on this, um, they might not be able to if that ship is pretty deep down in the ocean. I would be interested in whether, you know, private companies are using this map to sort of do that salvage work. I'm under the impression that it's mostly, you know, environmental groups or nonprofits or academics who've been in contact with you. Yeah, I have been in touch with an archaeology company, uh, for instance, that was doing some studies and analysis of the appropriateness of uh, establishing wind farms offshore. Uh, And of course, to be able to do that, you need to know what's on the bottom of the ocean. So in this case, uh, they reached out to me and we had a discussion about that. One of the most fun things that I've encountered in doing this is that sort of investigation locating where the ship is sometimes accurate uh, coordinates not provided but sometimes there are pictures obviously pictures of a ship sinking in the middle of the ocean isn't going to give you any reference point it could be anywhere but ships that have been sunk uh close along shore or in harbor um those are particularly interesting because on occasion you can figure out by the uh landmarks in the uh image where that ship was located. So That's cool. that is uh, that is one of the more fun detective parts of the project to be able to come across a picture and say, this is a ship. And you look at Google Street View and try to figure out where that is. And it's like, okay, I think it's right about here. Yeah. And like, I imagine people from around that area probably are like, hey, I recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know, a lot of those ships that were sunk inshore or uh, in harbor have been cleaned up because mm. a lot of times uh, the harbors would have been uh, blocked up and uh, rendered useless until those ships were removed. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it's a working harbor, then people are going to want to get mm. that cleared up as fast as possible. So Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Academic hat time. This is a definitely a project I would define as falling into the realm of the digital humanities. And I was just at a conference where they were talking about that sort of thing. And I could definitely see this being part of, of that. You're doing sort of research into history, pulling from these archives and databases online, and then visualizing it using computer methods and tools. And I think that's incredibly cool. Um, so I'm not surprised that there's been academic interest in your work. Yeah, it's it's definitely been fun, right? I mean, I started out as a, you know, a fun project, and then it's turned into something, oh, okay, this has value that people are interested in. So, you know, that uh, makes me feel good for all the, the, the time and effort that I put into it. If our li- listeners are interested in this project at all, um, 
can they get involved in any way? Um, or is there sort of a way for them to, I mean, maybe not necessarily do dives themselves, but to contribute to this project? Well, definitely, if they have information on a specific shipwreck, or if they're looking at the map, and they notice that there are errors, uh, mm -hmm. which there are, I mean, unfortunately, I am not perfect. And sometimes things get a little messed up. Definitely, uh, any feedback on the content or missing content is most appreciated, because I'm always looking to improve this map. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, we're out of time for this episode, but I could continue this discussion for hours, honestly. So thanks for agreeing to a chat with me about this. <laughs> hey, you're welcome, Ariel. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for also introducing me and our listeners to this fascinating world of basically data forensics uh, when it comes to these downed ships, both ecological disasters and economic opportunities. It reminds me a lot of uh, this YA speculative fiction novel, um, by Paolo Bacigalupi. It's called Shipbreaker, and the main character makes a living by reclaiming materials from abandoned ships. And so your project to me is kind of like a solar punk type of treasure map. Uh, big risks and big rewards and big adventure and maybe some conventional treasure. Uh, it's awful that these ships were sunk, like don't get me wrong, and all the human and ecological suffering that was a part of the tremendous tragedy of World War II's naval battles and their legacy since then. But solar punks take a look at a degraded world full of tragedy and strive to make a better future anyway by taking positive action in the present. And Paul, I see this mapping project in particular as enabling that positive action of mitigation and reclamation of the harms that were done and are currently happening because of these shipwrecks. So Thank you again for your time. Thanks. And I hope that uh, people uh, find uh, the work that I've done useful. And thank you also, listeners, for tuning in this week. So until next time. Thank you for listening to SolarPunk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solar punk presence or share the podcast with friends family and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say we'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority so we can reach more listeners until the next episode keep dreaming and keep up the good work <laughs>